Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Religion and empire are often intertwined. Regarding Muslims, there are well-known dynasties like the Umayyad, the Abbasid, the Fatimid, the Ottoman, and many others. But the empire governing the largest Muslim population was, of course, the British. In imperial Muslims, Islam, community, and authority in the Indian Ocean, 1839-1937, Scott Rees explores the social effects of the British Empire and its attending conditions on Muslims in the port city of Aden. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Aden was undergoing tremendous change, which was fostered by its valuable position within the empire. Muslims from both ends of the empire were making Aden their home. The diversity of the community and technological innovations shaped the everyday lives of Muslims. Rees explores Aden's sacred landscape by investigating how space was produced and organized. He demonstrates how unseen entities affected the activities that these spaces elicited. Questions of authority emerged through an exploration of local Islamic discourse, where authority was regularly asserted and contested across differing Muslim groups. The boundaries of religious practice were also being pushed through the practice of spirit possession. He also tackles the tension between the local and the global when the Muslims of Aden reflect on transnational scripturalist or Sufi movements. In our conversation, we discuss how local religious actors were shaped by broader Islamic trends, emerging print technologies, maritime flows, law and adjudication, the role of mosques and cemeteries, Salafism, and popular religious practices. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books and Islamic Studies. Now, my conversation with Scott Rees about his wonderful new book, Imperial Muslims, Islam, Community, and Authority in the Indian Ocean, 1839-1937, to published with Edinburgh University Press. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Oh, I'm great, Christian. Thanks for having me on to talk about the book. Yeah, so uh, this this really is a wonderful book, Imperial Muslims. You're you're doing a lot of uh, work in terms of bringing different communities, different types of technologies together, uh, looking at this very kind of interesting and dynamic community uh, during a really important time in history. So I'm excited to 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 get into this. Um, we always start uh, our interviews though with a little bit about the author. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about? Uh, moments or mentors that have been influential in shaping you as a scholar, um, kind of what brought you into Islamic studies? How did you become uh, the scholar you are? Um, yeah, it's funny. Actually, I often joke with my students when they ask that question. I, I say it was a whole series of poor life choices kind of brought <laughs> me to this moment. Um, as an, I studied Arabic in, in college and then worked in Egypt uh, as a third grade uh, English teacher for a year, 
and eventually decided that I, I really couldn't do anything other than be a historian. Um, but I also, after I'd had a lot of African history classes uh, in university, and I, I didn't want to be just another uh, U.S. historian who worked on uh, Egypt or Syria. Um, so when I started looking at graduate school, I, I, I really got fascinated by the notion of the Indian Ocean and the fact that you had um, so many Muslim communities, um, particularly in East Africa, um, who were very integrated into the larger community of believers and, and actually produced texts in a variety of languages, but mostly Arabic. Um, and I realized nobody was really working on it. And so that's very much how I got drawn into it. And I ended up uh, going to graduate school at UPenn and studying with Lee Casanelli, uh, who was a Somali specialist, but who didn't read Arabic. And so as a result, I, I discovered that there was this whole um, library of material, mostly that had been produced in the 19th and early 20th centuries by, um, by Somalis, and, um, but primarily in Arabic. And so I really started just following that trail and, and very much going down the, the rabbit hole, I think. Uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and that ultimately led me to looking at uh, history, not just from the perspective of a single place, but also looking at the interconnections. Because one thing I, I realized was that Somalis and other East Africans weren't limited to East Africa, in fact. And their, their worldview was much broader than that. And they had uh, connections that led you in multiple and very often unexpected directions. Um, so it's always been that, that sort of trans regionality that, that's, that's attracted to me. And it, it's something that my, uh, it's been attractive to me and it's something that my, uh, work has become increasingly focused on over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, uh, how, uh, how your work did develop and then how this project started to emerge because, uh, this is, uh, I think your third book, um, and you know, you kind of have. Uh, different angles that seem to connect, uh, but perhaps that has led to to the Imperial Muslims book. So, can tell um, us a little bit about how all that came together. Yeah, that's another uh, you know interesting story of of serendipity. Um, I was actually working on my second book, the uh, Renewers of the Age, which is about uh, Sufis in Somalia. And I was in London. I was supposed to be working with a uh, traditional Somali scholar and working our way through this book called uh, Majmoul Mubaraka, The Blessed Collection, which is by a, a relatively prominent local Somali Sufi. Um, it's kind of on the, the B team, but he was, the book was sort of influential for a lot of reasons. Uh, but as a result of one thing or another, uh, we could never really... Uh, connect with one another. And so I ended up with a lot of time on my hands. So I went to the British Library and to the India office uh, collection. Uh, and I thought I would look for things on Somalia, particularly from Aden, uh, to see what if, if there was anything really to grab onto there that could be useful for the book. And in fact, there were a couple of things that I won't talk about now. But, but what I discovered in the Aden archives was this incredible nuanced treasure trove 
the likes of which I'd never seen in a, in a, um, in an bureaucratic archival collection. Um, uh, there was certainly a lot of stuff about, um, uh, you know, passports and, um, Hajj traffic and, and, um, and uh, bureaucratic things of that nature. But what I found in, in the Aiden archives were these incredible stories um, of, 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 of really the inhabitants of Aiden. These were incredibly um, detailed, intimate accounts of people's lives as they intersected not only with the colonial state, but with one another. Um, because you would have petitions, you would have reports on, on local, on local um incidents you would have with those biographical sketches of individuals uh you would often have letters from people to the state um and and these were all focused on on the daily life of the community and not only was this a rich source of material but the one the other personal material and uh, material that focused on the everyday but the other thing that i began to quickly notice in the book was that um, almost always, um, religion or faith was at the center of a lot of these conflicts or, or a lot of the, the issues that people were dealing with. And I very quickly realized that a communal life was really centered around these Muslim institutions. And so that's really how the, the book got started. And it was about a 10 or 12 year process of kind of taking that kernel of an idea and, uh, increasing, uh, um, incrementally pulling it apart to look at different kinds of institutions, including not only physical institutions uh, like the walk for the Cadiz courts, but really going to the more towards the more ineffable, um, so that institutions um, centered around uh, ideas like saint veneration or spirit possession. Um, and so, yeah, it was a very long, drawn out process, but one in which I. Um, became increasingly immersed. And I, I have to admit that this was, this book was the most enjoyable piece I've ever written. Well, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a great book to read because you really do pull these kind of multiple threads together um, in very interesting ways. And I think the way you framed it, um, this idea of Muslims in the Imperial context uh, helps us, helps us view this. So, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what we need to know about the relationship between Muslims um, and empire to to get into this project. How do things like power and community and technology shape the the social lives of Muslims? Well, I think there are two things there to keep in mind. Is the is as you say, the first thing is community. The other thing is empire. Um, I think we have to keep in mind that. Um, uh, the Muslims of Aden are drawn together from across the Indian Ocean littoral. Um, when the British occupy, it, uh, occupy Aden in 1839, it was, it was a place that already had a very long history. In fact, it dates to the early common era. Um, but by the 19th century, it had really fallen on very hard times. And it's essentially a big fishing village. Uh, they're about, at most, uh, the estimates vary, but at most about 800 people living there. Um, and, once the British occupied the place in 1839, uh, the population explodes and um, to it, it doubles within six months. It doubles again within a year. Uh, but I think what we have to keep in mind, what most people don't um, 
realize is that this population that moves to Aden is not only drawn from across the British Imperium, but it's actually actively recruited um, for various reasons. One is to provide kind of the um, auxiliary uh, occupations that any uh, port or military installation needs, uh, dock workers, coal, colliers, um, uh, uh, domestic servants, um, these sorts of things. But also they're actively recruiting merchants to come and settle there. Uh, Aden is always thought of as just a big coaling port uh, that was uh, occupied as part of imperial expansion. But as I demonstrate in the book, uh, actually a very big part of British thinking in uh, the occupation of Aden was the establishment uh, of a, an outpost of the East British East India Company uh, that could oversee British commercial interests, especially Indian capital in the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea. So. The thing is that you bring all of these strands of people together from across the Indian Ocean who create a, a single social fabric, and but they're coming from East Africa, they're coming from Ethiopia, they're coming from India, uh, particularly Western India, Gujarat, um, and one of the few things they have in common is being Muslim. And so this is what really forms, begins to shape the basis of the community very early on. Uh, the other thing that I think we have to keep in mind, and we often don't think of about the British Empire, is the extent to which non-Europeans are involved in the daily running of the state. Uh, and Aiden, I think, is a very good example of this because there are only at any given time, you know, half a dozen European officials uh, hanging around. And the vast majority of bureaucratic tasks uh, actually to a quite high level in Aden are actually be, uh, uh, being overseen by non-Europeans, by Indians or Arab officials um, who uh, are, are really overseeing the, the daily running of the state. So things like uh, the courts, uh, police officers up to the level of inspector, um, uh, the registration offices, um, a lot of the um, port offices are often overseen by and uh, by non-Europeans. By and most of these are Muslims, not all of them, but but a, a, a very large proportion of them. And I think that these two things um, really provide us with a very nuanced understanding of empire and of community in this sense is that that um Aden's Muslims have a lot of latitude in how they shape their community and how they develop it so that for instance the uh emergence of the Waqf committee uh which I talk about in uh I believe chapter chapter four of the book um is a committee that emerges among a certain set of notables uh, to administer the pious endowments, which they argue had been um, uh, allowed to deteriorate over time. The thing to keep in mind is that, that this is a wholly local initiative that's undertaken not only by members of the local ulema and other kind of important local notables, but actually Muslim members of the administration um, 
the um uh the, the guy who's known as the registrar who's a lower a judge of lower of um small causes they refer to it sort of a small claims judge uh is this guy named khan and he's a bombay trained lawyer he's posted to aden uh first as kind of a, a assistant resident and then he moves into this judicial position but he becomes involved in this committee um in what is referred to as his private capacity. So that um, while the British ultimately recognize the existence of this committee and, and see it as, 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 as certainly something that uh, functions to the, to the benefit of the state, um, it's again, it's something that's actually um, entirely the creation of the local population, of the local Muslim community. And so we see a great deal of agency there in how um, local society is is administered and, and shaped over time. Now, um, the 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 real great part about the book is you bring both this kind of uh, these kind of religious discourses and ideas about tradition, uh, but then you also kind of uh, give us a view from the ground of what people are doing. Um, it's, it's really great. I think it's a, you've done a really good job of kind of giving this 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 great broad vantage point. Um, and part of this is uh, thinking about uh, Aden's sacred landscape. So uh, can you tell us how sacred space was produced and organized uh, during this period? Uh, what types of places became important for Muslims? Um, and what kind of activities did these uh, places uh, enable to, to happen? Um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, Aden is, is, is an enormously interesting sacred landscape um, that, um, again, very interestingly, is extremely diverse in how it emerges um, and has a, a function of providing um, sort of sacred venues for people not only in the present, but um, connecting them to a sense of, of, of their past or of, of what, or of a connection to Aden across the long durée. Um, so the really fascinating thing here is, is that, um, as I said before, most of Aden was, um, uh, very depopulated when, uh, the British show up in 1839. And in fact, the place is largely, there's a small stone town, but the place is largely a ruin. And, but if we read earlier histories of Aden, earlier accounts of Aden, um, there was a very, very vibrant religious and particularly scholarly life. And we have medieval accounts that talk about um, the um, proliferation of tombs and uh, the presence of large numbers of, of awliya or saints. Um, and what we find in uh, from the 1840s, essentially, is that as more as the Muslim community grows, we see the reemergence of sanctified spaces. Um, when the British arrive, there are only two functioning mosques and and two tombs. Um, by 1850, this has grown to almost a dozen tombs alone, places where people um, regularly go to uh, venerate. Uh, individuals who are regarded as wallies, as saints. Um, and the interesting thing is, as it, as it relate in the book, um, many of these tombs are actually ones that are revived 
that are um, uh, tombs that have a certainly at least an early modern or early modern or medieval genealogy to them, but then are rebuilt and essentially reconsecrated um, to to serve or to provide a focal point for uh, the veneration of believers. And what we find here is that they, these very quickly become the sites of ziyarats or annual festivals um, that uh, draw from uh, a, a wide swath of the population, people from the interior, but also people from Aden itself. So, and But also often people from the African coast will come for these ziyarats that are annual festivals. Um, and there's a whole host of things that then begin to emerge out of that that we can, uh, and in terms of their significance for the community, but also, uh, in fact, the imperial state. Um, these become certainly a, a, a locus of local ritual and tradition. Uh, they become, but they also become uh, very important economic um, economic events where there is a, there are large, the, the festivals center not only around the tomb, but usually in the much wider neighborhood where you have a carnival like atmosphere and a lot of business is done uh, at, at these annual events. Um, but, and, and they also become actually oddly enough, a, a focus of the state who actually begins to become actively involved in the spiritual life of the city. And this ranges from not only giving permission for these things to take place, but actually subsidizing them on occasion. Uh, and in the case of uh, at least one resident uh, in the 1920s, a guy named Bernard Riley, um, he actually participated regularly in the processions and took took part in the laying of the, of the new Kiswa over many of the tombs each year, the, the cover that goes over the saint's tomb itself. Uh, so the state really becomes very invested in these things as, a, as an important um, social slash spiritual event. Um, but I, I think the other thing that, um, and I talk about this in the book extensively, is the role that these plays play not only in kind of a social spiritual realm, but actually in terms of, of they're, they're a they're uh, a window into I think um, people's more intimate spiritual lives that we often don't see uh, and is often hard to get a hold of, particularly in the modern era. Um, and that these these tombs are also seen as places where one can access. Um, uh, the other, the otherworldly, the external dimension, the dimensions that are external to our material one, and um, and I think we see this um, in the sense uh, we we see this um, in the fact that many of these tombs are actually reconsecrated. Um, that there is, of course, a belief in Islamic theology that you have not only um, this life and the afterlife, but you have a whole host of alternative dimensions that can be accessed uh, through something known as the Nur Muhammadiyah, the light of Muhammad. 
and effectively the tombs are conduits to this because the saints themselves are are connected to this divine light in in a very uh manifest way i don't want to say physical because it's actually metaphysical but um and that these are seen as as places where you can gain you yourself as a believer can gain a proximity to these things. Um, we also see this not only in in terms of of access and going to the saint's tomb uh, during ziarat, but the desire of people to be actually buried in proximity to these tombs uh, very often. And again, this this has a very long tradition uh, in in his Islamic. Uh, uh, in Islamic cosmology, of um, of proximity to uh, to um, blessed individuals, individuals with a great amount of baraka, will ensure that one has a a, a much more uh, pleasant uh, weight in the grave until the day of judgment. So you have this this desire to be um to uh, to be close to these conduits of of divine light and again we see this in aden as, as something that again binds the community together i think because because this um really transcends um you know geographic origin or ethnicity and you you see people of indian origin wanting to be buried near the tomb of sheikh Idrus, who's the big local saint you see um uh, Somalis wanting to be buried near the the, the tomb of Sheikh Uthman, um, who is a local Arab. So again, it's this desire to be connected, uh, and this this view that people are connected to one another as believers that again transcends things like ethnicity and uh, uh, language and the geographies of birth. <clears throat> now. Um- you also come off the ground, uh, so to speak, uh, and then look at legal discourses um, and issues of authority, uh, and especially cont- contesting this authority. So, um, you know, you've told us a little bit about kind of the, the professional and institutional context of Aden, but uh, how how did law operate there? Who was participating in these legal discourses and adjudication? Um, and, and then how were these kind of boundaries or, or different authorities constructed and contested within this context? Yeah, Aden's a really funny place within the empire because um, in a, it, it's, of course, it's administered uh, from Bombay uh, for most of its colonial history. It's only um, transferred to the colonial office in 1937. So as a result, it's actually for most of its its its. Uh, time as an imperial outpost, it's it's governed by the Indian Penal Code, and um, it's supposed. But at the same time, it always remains this uh, this outlier, where the Indian Penal Code never really seems to, and the the structures of imperial uh, law um, and legal mechanism never seem to be applied in the same way, in the exact same way that's being applied in much of India. Um, most relevant there is the fact that um, local religious judges, the Qadis, 
actually retain a great deal of authority um, right up until about World War I, uh, whereas in, in India, they've actually been, by this point, by the middle of the 19th century, been stripped of most of their authority um, and are really just kind of uh, existed in an advisory uh, and uh, registrar capacity, registering um, uh, marriages and, and this sort of thing. Um, but in Aden, they're not only still registering marriages, but they're overseeing divorces and also, but most importantly, overseeing matters of inheritance quite late, um, really, as I said, until about 1910 or so. Um, and what's particularly interesting about this is that um, this comes to an end uh, and their power, their authority is restricted, not by uh, European officialdom. Not by some dictate of the dictate of the state, um, but instead uh, as a result of uh, the actions of the registrars, these judges of small causes, um, who are which is an office created about 1890 uh, to relieve pressure on the res- court of the resident, um, and are supposed are guys who are supposed to deal with cases, uh, civil cases, uh, up to I believe 500 rupees. Uh, in value, and right around 1900, you have a, you have uh, two registrars who are appointed one after the other, uh, who are both Muslims. One is a locally born Adani, uh, but from an Indian Sayed family, and the other is this other guy uh, Khan that I mentioned earlier, uh, Yasin Khan, uh, who was himself from Meerut in the United Provinces, uh, educated in Bombay, and enters colonial service right at the end of World War I. And both of these guys um, want to not only curb the power of the Qadis, but accrue that power for themselves um, under the theory that, well, uh, in, in that on the one hand, they're a Muslim, and on the other hand, they're a lawyer. So that qualifies them to uh, discourse on Islamic law on Islamic jurisprudence. And so um, what happens is uh, over a series of years, they convince the state to restrict the power of the Qadis to the point where they are only overseeing uh, the registration of, of marriage and divorce and, and not only lose their ability to uh, adjudicate inheritance, but also um, begin to experience greater and greater interference, especially in in cases of um, um, divorce, but also questions of things, uh, uh, um, charges of facilitating underage marriages. Whenever there's a problem with a marriage um, that comes to the attention of the state, the registrars are very quick to jump in and uh, use this as an excuse to point out the incompetency of, um, of the local judges, of the Qadis themselves. Um, and over time, what we see, again, is to um, kind of make a long story short here, is on the one hand, the, um, res- the, the, the containment, the um, circumscribing of the power, the authority of Qadis themselves, um, and the growing authority and the growing influence in society of these largely 
civil functionaries in the religious life of society. Now, this isn't one that's, that goes uncontested. In fact, um, the, um, uh, the uh, interaction between them can become quite uh, vociferous between the two parties, uh, especially over the 1920s. Um, but what we see here is, is, is we begin to see the monopoly of the local ulama being eroded. And I think the thing to come back to here, the interesting thing is that this isn't at the behest of the imperial state. I mean, they're quite happy for the registrars to become more influential, but it's not an agenda they're pushing. It's an agenda that's being pushed by the functionaries themselves to, to assert themselves in, in what is seen as civil society effectively the the relationships the functions interactions of, of people in the community and so we begin to see this sort of um shift in authority uh one that um as i said doesn't go uncontested um but i think one that's that's very significant in terms of reimagining the the public sphere in this period now um you, you've described a. Uh, a little bit here and there about the kind of uh, dynamic uh, range of uh, community members that are uh, involved in aided. And uh, in one chapter, you look at um, uh, spirit possession and the, the boundaries of religious practice uh, that are being kind of measured out in this context. So, uh, you know, how did spirit possession operate in Aden? Where, where is this kind of religious practice coming from? Who's participating in it? And, and how is it perceived within the, the broader context, the broader Muslim community there? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, again, uh, the nice thing about uh, the really interesting thing about spirit possession, like tomb visitation, is that it really enables you to get to a, a different level of, of society, a kind of more uh, visceral level. Of, of, of the community where you're not just seeing the interactions of elites, but actually able to see, um, get a better view of the lives of, of, of non-elites and particularly in the public sphere. Uh, there were two primary forms of spirit possession that functioned in, in, in Aden. Um, Czar, which a lot of people are aware of. This is a, a spirit cult that has its origins, its immediate origins in Ethiopia. It's first reference, recorded reference to it, I believe, is in the 17th century, um, but seems very closely related to something known as the Bori cult, which is a, uh, a West African form of spirit possession. And this is a, a variety of, um, of uh, spirit possession that we find throughout Eastern Africa, but also we find it um, in the Sudan, we find it in Egypt, we find it throughout the Red Sea, and, and even in parts of, of the Persian Gulf, we find it uh, quite active czar uh, groups in Oman and Kuwait, for instance. Um, and it tends to be associated, at least in the, by the 19th century, it's associated primarily with um, servile communities or, or slaves. Um, and it's also practiced primarily by women. And the idea of czar is that individuals, women mostly are possessed by particular jinn or spirits, uh, that have very particular personalities, um, that 
um, take over an individual. And then the idea is that you don't necessarily expel the spirit. There's not really an exorcism that takes place, but there's a placation of the spirit. Um, that um, that occurs, that and there are various rituals that have to be undertaken uh, to accomplish this. That include uh, dances, that include certain invocations, but also include most importantly the uh, provision of gifts, uh, things like perfume or incense or clothes. Uh, that are things that will appease the spirit who's been making the afflicted individual ill. Um, now, as I said, we find this uh, throughout Eastern Africa. Uh, there are accounts of it at the Royal Court of Zanzibar. Uh, Snukugronia talks about it. It has a very lengthy discussion of it in his um, uh, uh, early ethnography of Mecca from the 1880s. And as I said, we find a very vibrant scene in, in Aden uh, and in Yemen more, more broadly. Now, um, there are two things here that uh, we need to address is that one is whether or not this is something that, that resides within a larger Islamic discourse and whether it's something that is um, permissible or forbidden. Um, the interesting thing about the, the earliest references to Zar, uh, the earliest accounts, uh, is where it resides in relation to um, to Muslim tradition, to Islamic discourse, and um, Janice Body writes about it in the nineteen in in the Sudan uh, has written a very in what is a, a very influential ethnography from the nineteen nineties um, um, uh, called Wombs and Alien Spirits and and and. Her experience talks about Zara as something that's very cl closely connected to Sufism, and this is in the Sudan, uh, mainly contemporary. She's talking about it in the 1980s, but also does some historical research tracing it back to the 1940s. Um, what I found particularly interesting about the Aden case and, and by uh, looking at uh, these earlier accounts from Zanzibar and from Mecca in the 19th century was in fact that that Zara women didn't connect themselves closely to um, to Islamic discourse, in particular to Sufism, to Islamic mysticism, but in fact presented themselves as something that was parallel to that, but not connected to it. That this was another spiritual function, uh, another. Um, another uh, spiritual mechanism that women could avail themselves of that was not particularly Muslim. And it seems to reside in Aden expressly in that, in that manner. Um, they're not connected to the saints tombs. Uh, they don't seem to have a lot of um, interaction with the uh, local religious establishment, but at the same time, they're very much tolerated. Um, this changes in the 1920s as we begin to get scripturalist reformers, um, what are sometimes referred to as Salafis, but those who look to um, only the, the earliest sources of, um, of religious discourse, the, the, the Quran, the Hadith of the Prophet, and um, the accounts of the Sahaba, the, the, the followers of the Prophet, as legitimate um, spiritual inspiration. 
and sources of guidance. Um, and they, of course, are very opposed to spirit possession. They see it as something demonic. And as a result, um, these women are ultimately pushed from the public sphere. Uh, in fact, they have to largely go underground, ultimately. Um, and this is because they, uh, in large part, one thing they don't do is is they they go out of their way, actually, ultimately, as you see in the book, to to offend the religious establishment at one point. Um, and this is interesting to juxtapose against the other uh, form of spirit possession in the settlement, which is a much less well-known cult uh, known as Tambura. Uh, that's actually pretty widely spread. It, it seems to uh, originate, again, in the Sudan. Uh, it seems to be related to a... Um, a, uh, a spirit cult from the southern Sudan, uh, associated primarily with the Zande, I think, uh, and um, is actually primarily the purview of men. And the idea here is, is that um, men become uh, possessed by particular spirits and that actually are healed from it, are... Um, uh, the the spirit is expelled, and then they themselves become can become priests. Um, the interesting thing about Tambura, there are two very interesting things about it here. Before I go on and talk about the connection with Sufism, is that first of all, as I said, it, it's 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 primarily men, but it's also primarily men from very low status backgrounds, either uh, former slaves or other kinds of servile lineages. Um, like Czar, we don't find it affiliate associated with particular um, ethnicities. Um, most of the men who belong to Tambura in um, in Aden are some are Sudanese, um, some are Ethiopian, and some are Somalis. And you, you find the same sort of um, diversity in, in in Czar. I should have mentioned earlier, um, but and they all happen to be uh, sweepers, garbage men in Aden. And again, they are very, very uh, active uh, through the 1920s. Um, but again, they fall afoul of the um, uh, scripturalist reformers who also want to have them banned because they see this as a forbidden activity. Whereas Tsar is successfully banned and is forced underground, uh, by, certainly by the, the, actually very quickly by the early mid 1920s, uh, Tambora actually manages to survive. And they do this in two ways. One is that they're able to uh, position themselves as, as not a religious activity, but as, a, as an entertainment, as simply a dance, something that the czar women try to do but are actually unsuccessful at. But they also have a much closer relationship to the, um, uh, to, to the, the, the local Sufi orders. And it seems that the local Sufi orders uh, provide them, afford them a certain amount of protection uh, with regard, especially to the state, where uh, a number of, of um, uh, Sufi functionaries, particularly those associated with the Idrus tomb, uh, which is the, the big tomb in town, the, big, the biggest tomb in town, uh, come back to the state and say, after their petitions to ban them and say, no, these guys are really harmless. They're fine. And so it seems to be this, this relationship that they have with the tombs uh, and with the, the, the local Sufi hierarchy that enables them to survive 
uh, in an atmosphere of increasing uh, scripturalist agitation through the 1920s and, and 30s. And this is something that the women, for some, for whatever reason, don't avail themselves of. In fact, in a lot of their um, petitions and letters that you can read in the book, they, they actually go out of their way very often to offend the senior religious establishment. So they don't actively seek out that protection or those relationships for for whatever reason, and, and my argument in the book is that, well, traditionally, czar is a is a parallel form of spirituality that that didn't um, a priori share these connections with with Sufism, with Islamic mysticism, and that these were things that had to be created. And 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 the, the czar women in Aden decide not to do that. Uh, now, in fact, czar does not disappear; it continues. It just has to get a lot more. Uh, a lot less public. Um, and so it, it persists uh, at least into the 1960s um, in, in Aden. Um, but again, it has a very different trajectory uh, from Tambora. And, and I think a lot of that does come down to the choices that people make about, about how to survive in this, this um, uh, changing atmosphere, one that's becoming much less tolerant of, of alternative forms of spirituality and, and, um, interactions with the unseen. Yeah. And that, that leads really well into the, the last, uh, complete chapter that you have in the book, which, uh, deals with, uh, kind of in an extended way, the, this tension between authority and different types of reform and tradition. Um, and what, one of the things that you do really well is, uh, show how this is locally shaped, uh, in a variety of ways. Um, so can you explain this, this tension between kind of the local and the global? Um, how would you say local religious actors are shaped by broader Islamic trends? Um, and then how did, how did uh, the, the, the aiding community participate in the conversations uh, that were happening globally? Wow, you saved the most complicated for last. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, this is this is really a, a huge um, uh, question. This is really a large issue, and it's it's one of the places where uh, I, I think the book best demonstrates that that Aden, like most communities, is shaped both on the local level, but but on the wider global, and in this case, imperial stage, um, a, a fact that becomes more and more omnipresent uh, in the early 20th century uh, due to innovations in, in technology, primarily steam and, and print. Um, Aiden had always been a very, as we've already said, it was always a very ethnically diverse Muslim community. Um, and what happens as um, we progress into the 20th century is that this place that had always been very connected to empire um, and with people constantly traveling between East Africa and Aden or uh, Arabia and Western India, um, these connections become even more lush and rapid. And with the emergence of steam, regularized steamship routes, but also print and uh, the connection of Aden uh, to the wider empire through reliable uh, mar uh, undersea telegraphic connections, uh, cables. Um, 
And what we begin to see with this is a is a lot of new influences into the local um, spiritual economy, particularly, as I mentioned before, um, ideas of scripturalist reform. And with this, we see not only a lot of new ideas emerging, but we also begin to see new actors. So people who are not members of the ulama, people who are not uh bureaucrats in the imperial state, although they still may be, but individuals like school teachers, uh, local journalists. Uh, one guy in particular, I talk a great deal about Muhammad Ali Luqman, uh, who has a, who is, um, uh, ethnically the, the family certainly considered themselves Arabs, but they'd spent a long, uh, many, many generations, uh, living in Gujarat. Um, they were originally Ismailis who by Muhammad Ali Luqman's generation had um, had reverted, I guess you would say, to Sunnism. Um, and they become very interested in these ideas of scriptural reform, uh, largely from a moral perspective, looking at many of society's ills that emerge uh, in the post-war period, the first, the, um, in the interwar period, um, such as a, a fizzling economy, um, and uh, fewer and fewer economic and social um, opportunities. They look at these as, as having essentially um, moral causes, uh, alcohol and drug abuse, um, um, profligate spending, a failure to save, um, um, the um, loss of uh, feelings of filial and, famil- and family responsibility. And so they're all looking for ways to rectify this. And for many of these guys, uh, scripturalist reform, um, nascent Salafism, uh, is very attractive initially. And people like Luqman establish um, a local chapter of, uh, of a literary club. Uh, these are very, very popular in the Western Indian Ocean and places like Egypt in the, in the interwar period. Uh, these uh, literary societies that are formed, uh, that are, are places to discuss important ideas and to also become engaged in um, social service activities of like um, basic education, um, providing relief during times of famine, um, assisting in um, public health matters when there are things like outbreaks of the plague, which happen um, actually kind of regularly in places like Aden. And you find these clubs, these kind of literary Islamic literary clubs cropping up throughout the empire, as I said, from Egypt to India and Southeast Asia. And this is just a local chapter of it. And initially, it's very, very informed by scripturalist ideology, this idea of only looking to the Quran and Hadith as, as elements of uh, religious and spiritual guidance, but more importantly, eliminating um, local um, unlawful innovations, or what, of course, is known as bid'ah. And this included things like uh, Zar and Tambura, which are early targets of the scripturalists. These are um, um, uh, uh, but it also includes uh, the Sufi tombs, 
uh, the saints' tombs and Sufi veneration of them. Um, but it also goes, uh, includes things like local rituals um, associated with prayer. So that, for instance, there's a local tradition of um, following the call to prayer, reciting two or three verses from uh, the surah known as the Confederates in the Quran. And this is actually, you find this uh, in a lot of places in the Western Indian Ocean, but this is determined to be by the local scripturalists as, as unlawful innovation and bidah. Um, what's interesting, though, is, is that um, are two things. One is that the, a lot of the local community, while there's certainly the, the scriptural reformists gain a, a certain uh, constituent, local constituency and, and quite a few local followers, there's a lot of pushback against them, particularly from the Sufi establishment. Um, so that there are um, uh, street scuffles between uh, Salafi adherents and, and Sufis. Um, there are disputes over whether or not you can hold zikr in, in, in particular mosques or not. And probably my favorite incident is where is actually at a local Salafi mosque where um, there's a, a, a prayer uh, one evening, I believe it's the, the, uh, the, the Maghrib prayer, and the Adan finishes and the Imam begins prayer inside the mosque and a bunch of guys show up on the portico, on the porch outside. And the mosque is too full for them to get in, so they don't go in, but they, they line up on the portico and they do the call to prayer again and then start the Maghrib prayer over again. And this is almost initiates a, a, a complete, a total throwdown between the two parties. And it's only the presence of a very quick thinking policeman that diffuses the situation. But um, when questioned about why they had started the prayer uh, after it had already begun inside the mosque, the, the leader says very innocently, well, you know, the verses from the Confederates hadn't been recited. So, so I thought there was no way the prayer had started that the Adan must not have been given already. So he uses this to, to, again, to push back against these scripturalist notions that are very much at variance with what the many in the local community see as an integral part of their own tradition. Um, but again, there's a lot, as I said, there's a lot of pushback against the local zirat. Uh, and local um, Sufi rituals. And in the early 30s, what happens is there are a number of scuffles that break out. There are a couple of, of fairly minor altercations, but the, the British authorities seek to crack down on them. And so what a lot of, uh, so this actually um, becomes a dispute that's fought out mostly in rival publications um, where they both, and in fact, ultimately, the scripturalists um, are forced to back down and seek some sort of middle ground, um, some sort of accommodation with the local Sufi establishment, which is actually at this point seems to be really kind of a majority of the population. Um, and what we see is that this comes, this accommodation comes primarily from Muhammad Ali Luqman and others like him who are... Uh, because they are Nahdawi, they're, they're individuals who see themselves as part of the Enlightenment, um, really want to see what they regard as progress, but, but aren't willing to abandon 
their own communal traditions willy-nilly. And what Lukman ultimately does is write a very eloquent statement about um, this is at a number of different, he says this is a number of different times, a number of different essays, but he says at one point, there are those who say I am against the tombs. And this is simply not true. I love the saints as much as anyone. And that what we should really do is go to the tombs and use them as, as exemplars uh, to meditate and to think on our own spiritual shortcomings and how we can be better Muslims, how we can be better people. Um, but at the same time, eschew many of the, the less advisable elements uh, of the ziyarat associated with the tombs. And what he's talking about are the uh, festivals and where there is a lot of gambling, there's a lot of alcohol consumption, people spend a lot of money buying new clothes, etc. And he says, we should, we should really tone that down. We need to, because that does go too far. And that, that's chewing away at our moral fiber and our economic well-being. And so that if we take the saints as exemplars, this is what's important. And so he really does have this huge role in reshaping the scripturalist discourse, which backs off from an absolute ban of saint visitation and, and seeks not even so much to modify because the, the, the festivals never really go away, but to seek some sort of accommodation, some sort of middle ground that can be socially acceptable to, to most people. Well, Scott, you, you really do a great job of bringing this kind of rich local detail uh, to kind of illuminate larger questions that a lot of us uh, are thinking about in Islamic studies. I definitely found a lot of parallels uh, in my work in China that I was thinking about in terms of this, this conversation or dialogue between the local and the global. So, so thanks for, for writing a wonderful book. Oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, so um, I'm sure uh, lots of people are expecting uh, more from you. <laughs> we don't want to... <laughs> Yeah, what have you done lately? Yeah, exactly. So um, we're, we're looking forward to, to more great work from you. So can you give us a little preview of uh, things you, you might be working on or uh, kind of have envisioned for the next uh, project? Well, right now I'm, I'm beginning to spin up a, a new project on, on the topic of print and publication, um, particularly in the interwar period. Um, you know, a lot of what I work with are locally compiled Arabic sources. Uh, and we begin to see these working their way into to print more and more frequently uh, from the early 20th century. And what I'm really looking at are a number of things. First of all, not I'm looking at the, the impact of print on a, a social and individual level but also looking at it as having a kind of it's just the, the technology itself is having a kind of agency where technology, both print, but also steam travel uh, have this enormous impact on not only are the ideas that people become exposed to during this period, but, but the interactions they begin to have, the networks that they, they function within uh, begin to shift and transform during this period. So I'm, I'm looking in particular at the emergence of um, a local print tradition, primarily in the Western Indian Ocean, East Africa and Southern Arabia, and its interconnections primarily with the Mediterranean, because what you find is um, 
only a very, very small print industry emerging in East Africa and Southern Arabia. And instead, most things actually being published through Cairo, through one um, um, uh, publisher in particular, uh, a guy named Mustafa Halabi al Babi company. It becomes this huge private publisher in Egypt um, that actually begin, uh, starts in about 1859 that uh, becomes incredibly prominent uh, by the 1920s and, in fact, dominant in terms of, um, of the publication of books um, in the Western Indian Ocean, really from um, the Red Sea in East Africa all the way to Indonesia. And so I, what I really want to – when I'm starting to look at is, is – the relationships that emerge as a result of this press and how does it become so dominant and how does it impact um, um, the discourses and, and networks that people have been traditionally involved in and, and how does it, it begin to shift those. Uh, at the same time, what I'm also looking at is, is how this works in, in reverse. How do these local authors begin to bring new elements of their tradition uh, to a much wider print audience, uh, which we see in terms of, of things like format and the use of certain kinds of poetry. Um, and so, but as I said, it's, it's very, it's a project and it's very early stages. So it's, it's still, it's, it's still pretty nebulous in that sense. So I, I um, we'll give you some time to work on it, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, good luck, and uh, thanks for, for making time to talk about this this wonderful book. I hope uh, people will go out and get a copy. Oh, thank you, and it, it is uh, out in paperback now, so it's, it's actually affordable. That was my conversation with Scott Reese about his great new book, Imperial Muslims, Islam, Community, and Authority in the Indian Ocean, 1839-1937, to published with Edinburgh University Press in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Please tune in to another episode soon.